Park. What a blessing it is to be with you this morning. What a blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord with one another. If you turn those house lights on, they can see their Bibles in front of them. But Mark is sending a message that the king has come. Amen? We sang about it this morning that the king has come. And the past two weeks we've seen a group, and we will deal with this group the next few weeks, of people who call themselves the Pharisees. And they reject the king's coming and his kingdom because they consider themselves to be good enough before a holy God. They reject the kings because in their worldview, they do not need the king nor his kingdom. Mm. They do not rejoice at the coming of the kingdom of God and thus begin questioning Jesus. Remember in the Garden of Eden, that's how this all began, was the questions about the character and nature of God himself and his word, if it's true. And the Pharisees are doing what Satan did in the Garden of Eden by questioning the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords himself. Remember a couple weeks ago, they asked the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? Instead of celebrating the man who is now able to walk and, and saying the Lord has come... They question the authority of King Jesus. And last week they asked the questions, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They find no joy in the kingdom of God. And they don't like what they see in the big celebration at Matthew's house. So they come to Jesus and they ask another question. Why aren't your disciples fasting like we do? And that'll be our topic this morning. Do they not want to be as pious as we are? You see, there was a problem in Israel's history. The problem was they would do a lot of religious activity such as fasting, and yet their hearts and their actions were far from God himself. Isaiah chapter 58 verse 3 says this in Israel's history. It says, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? So they're fasting. They're saying, God, you're not recognizing our fasting. Behold, in the day of your fast, the Lord answers, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with the wicked fist. Fasting your, like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself is it to bow down with his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Just the, the ritualistic fasting. 
Is not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to not, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. So Israel was like the Pharisees of this time who were doing a lot of religious activity. They were serving, they were fasting, but their hearts were far from the Lord. Why? Because their fasting or their religious duties was for themselves. They were seeking their own pleasure while not looking to the interest of others. You see, the gospel is that Christ came down to serve sinners, to be a servant of God for sinners, to die a death upon a cross, to humble himself for sinners. And these pious, self-righteous Pharisees, these people who knew the scriptures, were saying, we're doing all the religious activity, and yet they did not care about the people around them. Essentially, they were saying, look, I'm doing my duty and treating the people around them like dirt, my, my father had a, a good friend in Israel, and back in the day, you would have to call long distance, right? You have to call long distance to Israel, so he didn't call him very often because it was very expensive to call. Back in the day, you had to like collect call. You had to do all these weird things. You may not know what I'm talking about, but you literally had to pay for a long distance call, and uh, whenever he'd get, get on the phone... In Israel, he'd say, what am I, dirt, Lindley? Call me sometime. And this is the context in which Jesus comes, is you have these religious people treating other people in their community like dirt, yet saying, you should be more religious, Jesus. Jesus comes not to fit into their nice little box of their religious duties, but to usher in his kingdom. May we not try to put Jesus into our own box, but may we try to submit ourselves to the king. Mark 2, 18, let's read our scriptures together. If you will stand, we'll read that text together as we stand for the word of God and reading of his word here at Northwest, we believe that this is the authoritative um, word of the Lord to us. Thus we stand for the reading of God's word. Mark 2.18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. 
And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? Question mark. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk clothes on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old. And a worse tear is made, and no one puts a new, new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. You can be seated. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you are making all things new. And Father, we thank you that you have put into the scriptures what you are doing and how you are doing it. Father, may we as the people of God submit to your will in the way that you want it to be done and not try and do it our own way. Father, we thank you for this text of scripture this morning reminding us that King Jesus has come and we are the servants of the King. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your great name. May you speak through your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1995, I was uh, 11 years old. It was called the Battle in Seattle, and it was the final four year for Oklahoma State. We had some uh, good wins this weekend for Oklahoma and Oklahoma State uh, teams this weekend. But in 1995, I was into it, right? The NCAA tournament, and I was into it. And, and you know what? I had the opportunity to go to Seattle and uh, with my family and my parents, and we went to Seattle to go watch the Oklahoma State Cowboys led by Big Country. Now, if you don't know who Big Country is, he was number 50 for Oklahoma State. He's from Gans, Oklahoma, and he was seven foot tall. He wore a flat top, and uh, he was a big man. He ended up playing in the NBA for the Vancouver Grizzlies for a couple years, got hurt, and then retired back in Gaines, Oklahoma. But he was seven foot tall, and he was the leader of the Cowboy team. He was my favorite player. I had his jersey, number 50, for the Oklahoma State Cowboys. So I was around Tripp's age. And we go to the Final Four to pick up our tickets. And we're going to the hotel in which the Oklahoma State Cowboys are in. And guess who is in the elevator when the doors open? Big country. Bryant Reeves himself in this elevator. I was shocked, right? Like, I was like, who, how can this be? This man who I've looked up to is right here. So I got his autograph on a uh, little small little uh, basketball that I was holding at the time. Later, somebody would use that basketball. They would play with that basketball and the signature would rub away. And mom said, no, that's not a problem. And so she just traced over it. (laughs) 
But Big Country was a post player. So if you don't know what a post player is in basketball, that means they're around the paint. They don't stay outside. They don't dribble the ball outside. And they definitely don't shoot three-pointers. Big Country didn't shoot very many big uh, three-pointers, if at all. But what if I was in the elevator at this point, looking up to the seven-foot man who would shatter the backboard during that final four, and I said to him, why don't you shoot more three-point shots? That's a, that's a really silly question. If you know basketball and you know seven-foot and you know what big country's game was. But that's kind of what the Pharisees were asking. Just this silly question. Why don't your disciples fast, Jesus? I mean, we, we fast. We, we do this, this fasting every Monday and, 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 and Thursday. And, and we're, we're, we're really good at it. Jesus, why don't your disciples do that? And Jesus is essentially saying, the better day has come. The kingdom of God has come. The king brings with him forgiveness of sins and a seat at the table with the king. We should be feasting, not fasting. And the question is, from these Pharisees, why aren't you fasting? And Mark wants to show us with this question and with this, this, this story how far they missed it. And he doesn't want you to miss it. That the king has come to usher in his kingdom. Not your kingdom, but his kingdom. You see, sometimes we, we ask the wrong questions. Trying to put Jesus into our kingdom. Except Jesus doesn't come to fit into how we want him to be. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He's the one whose kingdom will have no end. He is like the bridegroom who has come for his wayward bride. And we, as the people of God, and the disciples at the time, should rejoice and celebrate his coming. And we should long to be with him. That's, that's a hallmark of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is we long to be in the presence of Christ himself. You see, the Pharisees, they wanted a different Jesus. One that they could place into their system into their system of beliefs to fit their traditions. And Jesus says, my kingdom is different. My kingdom is something new. It's not attached to this broken system of the world. It's something new. So let's read together what Jesus says. Verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? 
And Jesus said to him, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. This is our point number one this morning. In the presence of the king, there is no need for fasting. In the presence of the king, there is no need for fasting. I love how the book of Mark is pointing us forward. Isn't it beautiful? One day we will not need to fast. Because we will be feasting in the kingdom of God in heaven for all eternity. In the presence of King Jesus. We will not need to fast in the presence of the king. Notice in the beginning here, he begins with two groups, John's disciples and the Pharisees. Both were fasting, but they were fasting for different reasons. There was one required fast from the Old Testament law in Leviticus 16. It was on the Day of Atonement, the day of the year in which the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies to present to the Lord an atoning sacrifice for sin for the people. It was to be a solemn day, a day of fasting in which the people recognized they were sinners in need of the salvation of God. So one could say Israel was to fast in humbly asking the Lord to forgive their sin. And so John's disciples were most likely fasting in expectation of the salvation of God's people. John would be the forerunner to Christ. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, they would fast twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. And their fasting, Jesus would later say, would be a show of their pious works, of their religion, of how good they were. So Jesus is kind of answering both questions. John's disciples are fasting Because they believe the salvation of God will come. It has come. And the religious leaders are thinking to themselves, look how great we are, yet they're in the presence of the king. The one whom the day of atonement is pointing to is here. The one who will be the Lamb of God who will be slain for the sins of the world is here. And instead of rejoicing and celebrating, they're trying to fight fault with the king. And Jesus answers their question with the question, all the while showing himself to them of who he is, that he is God himself. Look at verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. You see, the, the, the wedding is the celebration. We, we would understand this concept even in our culture today. The wedding is the celebration. The bridegroom comes to take his bride. The, the bridegroom It's not a solemn event. Nobody is is dressed in black in a corner with their faces covered going, I'm not going to eat. 
That's not what happens at the wedding. In fact, there would not be allowed fasting at this event. It's a celebration. And Jesus gives this illustration of the bridegroom and the bride. And Isaiah, in the Old Testament, and the prophets describe the Lord as the bridegroom and God's people as like a bride. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 4 You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And so God uses this picture over and over to describe God and his faithfulness and his steadfast love with his people. One of the the great ways that he describes it is in the book of Hosea, the the husband of a wayward wife. You see, Israel has wandered off to pursue other gods. And God, in his steadfast love, still goes after a wayward Israel. And this is pictured in the prophet Hosea, whom God tells to go after his wayward wife, even after she has become a prostitute. To show how God would continually pursue his people even after they have prostituted themselves to other gods. Hosea chapter 2 verse 16. And in, in that day declares the Lord, you will be called my husband. You will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my ball. Baal was a false foreign god. For I will remove the names of the balls from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make th- for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So God uses this picture to show his steadfast love. And he uses the words covenant. He uses the words righteousness. He uses the word steadfast love. All pointing to the institution of marriage as a relationship between God and his people. So, in the beginning, Adam and Eve sinned. They broke the fellowship and the relationship with God in the Garden of Eden, going against God's design in his relationship. And the whole book of the Bible is pointing us to how God still pursues a broken people, a wayward people, a prostituted people to bring them back into fellowship and right relationship with himself. 
You see, there's a redeeming love pictured. It's the greatest love story ever told. It's the gospel. And this is why Jesus came. The bridegroom chasing after the wayward bride. The creator comes for his people to redeem them and to purchase them back. Isaiah 54, 5, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you in overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. God is coming for his people. And Jesus is here and he's saying, I'm going to set up a new kingdom. Maybe you feel lost this morning. Maybe you feel unworthy of the love of God as a result of your sin. And God is telling us, no, he's coming for his people. As a bridegroom comes for his bride, he values you. He finds worth and value beyond compare so much so that he would die for you. So what does verse 20 say? It says this. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Jesus says that his disciples will fast when the bridegroom is taken away. This is a violent taken away. As Jesus will be crucified, he will be cut off from the face of the earth, as Isaiah chapter 53 says says Isaiah 53, 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. You see, the bridegroom was cut off because... He dies. He gives his life for his bride, the church, the people of God, you. The beatitude is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the reality is, is that at some point, these disciples will mourn the loss of Christ. They will mourn the loss over their sin, And they will long to be in his presence again. And that is where we are. We are people who mourn over our sin, who led Jesus to the cross. And we long to be in his presence forever. Look at verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Not much of a sower. Right? And so the illustration is not 
as bright in my eyes, right? But for some of you who are sowers that understand these concepts, the, uh, the understanding of the concept is if you sh- sew a new patch on an old garment, it won't work because when it shrinks, it'll just tear it and rip it away. This is our second point this morning. The king has come to fulfill the old covenant. The king has come to fulfill the old covenant. Jesus uses this parable to teach about how the new covenant relates to the old. Jesus did not come to patch holes in the old covenant. Some people think that. That's not why he came. You see, the Old Testament law was given to show how far man was from reflecting God's glory in their life. The Old Testament law was given to show them their need for a Savior. I already talked about the fasting and the Day of Atonement and Leviticus 16. All of these laws pointing pointing us to a need for a Savior. A need for God's salvation. The righteous standard man could not attain. He had fallen short. They needed God's salvation. And so to try to put the Old Testament ritualistic laws, including the fasting rituals, into the new covenant was like trying to patch a new patch on an old clothing. Jesus says this, Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, Jesus came to fulfill the law perfectly. And that my friends, makes us, the church, the people of God who are in Christ Jesus no longer under the old covenant law. Romans 10, 3, for being, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I think that verse sums up this whole understanding of these parables in which Jesus asks and the questions he does about fasting. The people, the Pharisees here, are ignorant of the righteousness of God. And they sought to establish their own righteousness through their own works, and they did not submit themselves to God's righteousness. And then it says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So because of Christ's righteousness and the fact that we are now in Christ, we are baptized into his death and into his resurrection, it is his righteousness that has brought about the new covenant and an end with the old covenant. So Jesus isn't patching the old system of rules and laws. He's bringing in something new. This is why we don't perform the ritual laws of the Old Testament. We can eat a bacon cheeseburger after church today and have no guilt about it. 
We don't enter into the temple and sacrifice an animal on behalf of our sin. Why? Because Jesus has perfectly done that. Speaking of holes and fabric, right? When Christ died, the temple curtain, which symbolized the separation between God and man, was torn. It was torn in two. Why? The barrier between a sinful man and a holy God was now come down. Why? Because of the work of Christ. In essence, God would send the Holy Spirit to dwell in his church, in his people. And this is the new covenant work of God in which he promised through the prophets. And now Jesus is talking to us about. Jeremiah 31, 31. This is our most important text if we're looking back to the Old Testament about this passage. Behold, the days are coming. Jeremiah is prophesying the days in which they will come, in which the kingdom of God will come, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. It's not like the old covenant. He can't patch it. On the old covenant, it's not the same. It's a new covenant. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. There's the language again. The husbandry language declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. So God is making a new covenant in which... God will do the work. Listen, listen to what it says. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. No longer will they do the work. I will do it for them. And that's essential to understanding how the new covenant operates. It's in Jesus Christ. That's why our full faith and trust is in him. It's not in our own works. It's not in how much we do. It's not in what we can do. It's what Christ has done. You see, the old covenant relied upon man to upend, uphold his end of that covenant. But we could not, Israel could not live for the glory of God. And that points us to the one who could. Jesus the King, on behalf of his people, would suffer and die so the new covenant in his blood would be established and through faith in Jesus, God would grant salvation to those who believe in him. Luke twenty two twenty And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is initiating the new covenant here at the Lord's Supper that we partake of. 
that we sit at the table with Christ and say, because we are in Christ, because we have believed and placed our faith in Jesus, that he has fulfilled all the requirements of the Old Testament law, and now we are children of God, and we are declared righteous and holy. You see, the new covenant was not in the blood of bulls and goats, but in the blood of Jesus. Therefore, we are no longer under the law, but live for the glory of God in Christ Jesus. So you can't pass, you can't paste the new covenant understanding in an old covenant way and call it good. And this leads us to verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, I I know that most of you guys do this on a regular basis, so you probably know more than me about how to put the new wine into wineskins and tan the hides and then put it in together and all this stuff. But essentially, the process of putting new wine in wineskins was a normal occurrence back then. The people knew that this could not be done. Old wineskins would become brittle, and when the fresh wine came into it, the gases would come out, and the fermenting process, the wineskin would burst, causing the people to lose their precious wine. So essentially, Jesus is saying, you can't do this. And can't put the new covenant into the old covenant system. Verse, uh, this is point number three this morning. The king brings with him a new day of salvation. The king brings with him a new day of salvation. This is what he says. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's his message in Mark. There's a new day of salvation. Repent and believe in the good news that the king is here because his kingdom is arrived. Jesus saying one cannot bring the pharisaical system of works and follow Jesus. You see, the Pharisees missed God's king and his kingdom because they wanted to put Jesus into their system. There's a lot of people who want to put Jesus into their system. Mormons want to do it. Roman Catholics want to do it. Everyone wants to put Jesus into their system. And theirs was a works-based system in which they tried to find favor and worth before God by how good they did, how they fasted, how many times they prayed. And yet Jesus says, your worth and value is based upon whether you are with the king. A new day of salvation has come because God's people will be clothed in righteousness by God himself, not your works. 
Isaiah 61.10 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and a bride adorns herself with jewels. See, it's God's work of salvation and what Christ did, the blood of Christ covering you. He clothes you in righteousness, not based upon your own works, not based upon what you can do for God. So when you're here this morning and you're you're wondering, am I good enough for God? The answer should be no. The answer should be, I'm going to put my face to the ground in mourning and recognition that I need Jesus. And what Jesus does is he takes the person who recognized they're a sinner, blessed are those who mourn, Will they be comforted? And he wraps them in the clothing of his righteousness. And he picks them up off the ground. He says, come and celebrate with me. I've prepared a feast for you. And that's the picture that the Pharisees don't understand. And you know what? We, we in our world, we love to do. We love to do. What can I do for God today? What has God called me to serve? What has God called me to do? And sometimes we just need to rest in the full work of Christ. And we need to say, you know what? I am satisfied and content to be in the presence of God. Yes, God does call us to work, but it's after we have this deep desire and love for God. And so let us not lose hope and let us not lose the beauty of the message of the gospel through the book as we continue to do the work of Christ in our life and as a church. Let us not lose that beauty of this God pursuing his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great grace and your great mercy. We thank you that the king has come and his salvation is here. And that he's come to usher in his kingdom, not our kingdom. Father, help us to have submissive hearts to, to do what he's called us to do, not what we want to do. Help us to not put Jesus in a box and hold it around and carry it around with us. But Father, help us to submit our lives to the word of God in a way that is, Father, is pleasing to you. Help us to realign our hearts and our minds to your word and your truth in every aspect of our life. Father, help our hearts to be right in our service. 
Help it to not be one of pride and arrogance, but of recognizing that you, Father, have done the work in our life. That you have called us to the salvation and that you are working through your spirit in our hearts and minds to accomplish the work in which you want to do. And it's only through your power. Father, as the verse says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. Father, I pray that we would be reminded that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Father, help us to be not Pharisees, but help us to be tax collectors, people who are in desperate need to be with the King, in desperate need to be in the presence of the King for all eternity, focus our minds and our hearts and our attentions on eternal matters. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, we're going to have a time of worship in response to the word of God. Would you stand with me and worship the God of heaven and earth and come forward if you need prayer. We have pastors here who are more than welcome to pray with you and encourage you in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's worship.